You're listening to a podcast from the BMJ. Welcome to the BMJ podcast. This week we'll hear about Lifebox, the charity supplying pulse oximeters to operating theatres in resource-poor areas. Now, a number of studies showing that the cost-effectiveness of, of essential and emergency surgery is as higher, higher than a vaccine. But first, how have outcomes for extremely premature babies changed in the last 20 years? Helen MacDonald finds out. We're now joined by Neil Marlowe, who's a professor of neonatal medicine at UCL Institute for Women's Health, to discuss his two research papers which have come out this week. Both of these papers are looking at um, neonatal outcomes in the short and long term for um, very preterm babies. Now, Neil, I thought we should maybe start just by saying what we mean by um, very preterm babies and short and long term. Yeah, well, these are these are studies of babies who are born um, right down at what some people call the margins of viability. Yeah. This is 22 to 26 weeks mm-hmm. of gestation. And it's been known for a long time that that's associated with a high mortality and a high morbidity. Um, When we're talking about short-term outcomes, we're talking about the time the baby has on the neonatal unit, where not only is a high risk of dying, but a high risk of acquiring other conditions, such as chronic lung disease, which we call bronchopulmonary dysplasia, um, retinopathy of prematurity, which may go on to cause blindness if untreated, and brain injury. In terms of long-term outcomes, for the purposes of this paper, we've followed um, this group through to just a, just around an average of three years. But of course, that's still relatively short-term, mm. and you don't really pick up the full panoply of problems amongst children until they get to six, seven at school. Yes. So... To give us a bit of background, you have been part of orchestrating this larger thing called Epicure, um, and you published some papers in 1995 telling us what things were like then. And the aim here is really to tell us how things have changed. For readers who aren't familiar with Epicure, can you tell us what things were like in 1995? Well, I mean, the population we looked after in 1995 was a group of babies on whom we had no information about Mm. how they were going to do. Most of the outcome studies had a few babies at low gestations, but they may have a 100% normal outcome or a 100% abnormal outcome. It was very difficult to work out. So we did a full, proper epidemiological study, and we actually picked up every birth within the whole British Isles in 95. And at the time, um, mortality was very high. The numbers of babies who were surviving was down at around about uh, 20 20 to 30% of the 22 to 25-week group. But more importantly, and quite surprisingly at follow-up, we found that actually half of them had some sort of impairment, Mm. be it a severe impairment such as cerebral palsy, which is non-ambulant, blindness, deafness, which are relatively infrequent. But most commonly, these children had very delayed developmental scores. Mm. And we followed those children through now to 11 years. We could see that these impairments that we picked up at um, two and a half were actually persisting right the way through until the teenage years. And they were joined by sort of a, a range of learning difficulties, special educational needs at school, Mm. and behavioural problems, which led to quite a lot of psychiatric symptoms. And so one of the things that people said to us then was that actually 
what you're doing following this group is, is completely irrelevant to what we do today because we're much better at it now. Um, and so in 2006, we set about doing the whole thing again. Yes. What did the clever doctors think that they changed? What were we well, saying that we were doing better? Well, we, the middle 90s was a time when we were just recognising the major risk factors and what we might be able to do about them. We'd known for many years that antenatal steroids would help Mm. very premature babies, but not necessarily this group, because the studies were done many years before. And they'd fallen out of use, mainly because of controversy over different studies. But when the Cochrane collaboration started up, it was quite clear antenatal steroids were very effective. And so in the early 90s, we started to use antenatal steroids quite um, liberally in this group. We also learnt to keep babies warm. Mm-hmm. And it seems so trite to say that. But actually, these are very difficult babies to look after. You've got to provide them with a lot of help and stabilisation intervention in the delivery room. And um, to do that exposes them. And then they lose water and they use, lose heat by latent heat of evaporation. So the simple process of wrapping them in a plastic bag at delivery is very effective in keeping them warm. Um, we also had started to use very much more effectively um, surfactant replacement therapy, which is, has been available since the early 90s. But um, really now we use it not on the neonatal unit, but actually in the delivery room with the first breath or the first few breaths after birth. And that opens the lungs up and helps the children to survive without major respiratory um, interventions. So all of these things had come together. Plus, of course, things get better over time, you know. The other thing that we'd done, which was I think was quite interesting, was that in the early noughties, we'd had a major report. And as an end result of that report, we started to reorganise neonatal services. And we gave a structure of clinical managed networks, which um, are still going today and are very effective. These things, you would think, would actually improve outcomes. So I suppose that takes us on to what you did this time and what you found. What we found, yes. Well, um, the first thing is if we look at survival, we found that compared to 1995, survival had actually improved for babies of 24 and 25 weeks. It had improved overall by about 13% um, as an absolute um, And this is for the short term? This is just survival to discharge from yeah. hospital. Yeah. Very few babies die subsequently. Okay. And one of the well, the other things that was quite clear was that the changes that we saw at 23 weeks and 22 weeks of gestation, which are not ages where we tend to routinely intervene, were not significant. So um, at 24 and 25 weeks, we were seeing more survivors. Mm. So, so prior to th- those very extremes, mm. is that intervening because the parents are keen for that? Or Yes. I mean... I think most maternity units will not offer active care at 22 weeks. And certainly we know from uh, the second Epicure study that we were not intervening in in about 85% of births. Occasionally there is a a mandate from the parents to do something. Mm -hmm. Um, But more often than not, women arrive and deliver very quickly and no one's quite sure of the gestation. Mm. And you don't necessarily have the best team there. 
and um, in a lack of knowledge in a baby that's got a good heart rate and is breathing and is moving, then probably the most humane thing is to do something and take stock at a yeah. later point. At 23 weeks, we've for many years pursued a sort of fairly facilitative policy where we would um, only do something if the parents really wanted us to do. But if you ask a parent what they want you to do in that situation, they're always going to say to you, you know, give my baby a chance. Mm. It's very difficult not to say that. I think we need to understand what we're actually asking parents to decide better yeah. um, because it is a very difficult area. Yeah. And I suppose these kind of um, numbers and results feed into having a more informed yeah. discussion yeah. with parents and in the medical profession about what's possible. Absolutely. So we've got some improvements in the short term for mm-hmm. slightly Survival. older yeah. um, babies. So take us on to the long-term results now. Well, I, th- I think just before we get to the long-term results, mm. let's just think about what happens to babies after birth because we found two things. One was that actually... Um, most of the improvement in mortality was in the first seven days okay. after birth. Um, and that goes along with improved early condition. But secondly, that we hadn't altered the rate of chronic lung disease and we hadn't altered the rate of brain injury and that we hadn't altered the rate of retinopathy. In fact, it had gone up a little bit, but probably because my ophthalmic colleagues are very good now at treating with laser and, uh, and preventing blindness. So... This was quite worrying because although we hadn't improved survival, we hadn't improved the morbidity in the short Mm. term. So we went back to see them at um, three years of age. And I mean, the headlines from that would be that overall, as a proportion of the survivors, we hadn't altered the rate of severe disability. That's um, non-ambulant cerebral palsy and severe learning difficulties, um, blindness or deafness. And that was quite disappointing But then if we set against that, the other findings, because we'd seen an improvement in survival and we'd also seen a huge increase in the number of babies that we'd had into the unit, we found that we had an increased number of survivors without disability. And I think that's actually quite important because if you take the whole population of babies that are admitted for neonatal care, in 1995, um, only 23% of them survived without disability, whereas in um, 2006, uh, 34% of them survived without disability. And, of course, that was in the face of a nearly 44% increase in the number Mm. of admissions. The other thing we noticed was actually that we had seen a small reduction in the the proportion with severe abnormalities at 24 and 25 weeks, which was commensurate with the improved survival. But we still still were seeing about half the survivors at 22, 23 weeks with severe problems. Gosh. And there there are some cautions in how we should interpret this, particularly with the longer-term outcomes. So just before... I suppose we over-interpret, yeah. particularly the longer-term outcomes. Just tell us what, what we have to bear in mind. Well, we have to bear in mind that um, uh, the research environment had changed a lot between ninety five yeah. and 2006. And as just as we were about to start in 2006, we found that we were no longer able to use the real-time databases to trace patients. The second thing that happened was that um, the whole R&D culture of the country changed and instead of ringing up my colleagues and getting someone to go into 
see a few babies alongside their outpatient clinic. We now had to um, uh, get research passports. We had to do CRB checking every time we went to a different trust. And the whole thing became so laborious that the children were getting too old by the time we got it all done. So we ended up seeing just over half, 55% of the children at three. And then we had about another 20% that we had data from uh, local sources. Mm. So we've had to use statistical techniques of imputation to actually inflate it. We did notice that there was a bias in the social demographic mix, which meant that we'd seen fewer children um, of disadvantaged families. And, of course, that relates to your developmental score. But it doesn't seem to affect the rate of very bad developmental scores. So that didn't affect it. If we then took the whole 75% and imputed from that, we found the same findings. So we're pretty confident of the findings, but we have to be cautious. So given this... I mean, the the papers are stuffed full of numbers and you can can drill down into microscopic detail um, on the outcomes for these babies... What, as a neonatologist, do you take away and think we need to do or change or research differently? Well, I think, I mean, neonatal medicine is one of the areas of medicine which is probably most beset with randomised trials and longitudinal studies. We're very good at trying to do that. And one of the frustrations is that the big things, such as steroids and surfactant usage, have really come and gone, and we're now left at trying to chip away at what we've got left. And so we have to learn a lot more about the factors that lead to these poor outcomes. And to some extent, I put the sort of cerebral palsy brain injury to one side because we are seeing a reduction in cerebral palsy and we're seeing a reduction in the severity of cerebral palsy. But what we're not seeing is this reduction in learning difficulties Mm. and low developmental scores. And the problem here is that at... 23, 24, 25 weeks, when you're born, your brain is unfolded. It has a very thin cortical mantle. It has a very large cortical plate structure Mm. underneath it, which acts as traffic lights for migrating neurons and oligodendroglia. And the the, f- the mere fact you're born at that, gest- that low gestation means that a process has been going on before delivery, which has resulted in delivery. And so it's not surprising that we have developmental changes in the brain after that. And we know that when the, a very preterm baby gets to full term, that the brain is less folded, is smaller and has more areas of gliosis on MRI. What's gliosis? That is scarring um, on MRI. And also that the white matter tracts are less discreet, if you like. And so the end result of that is that in some ways it's great that we have children who come through this period and actually do brilliantly well. On our website, we're starting to collect some of those really good stories Um, Because actually, you know, many of the children that we see are doing well. And although we talk about 50% who have some sort of problem, um, actually 50% don't have a problem. Mm. (laughs) And one has to remember that. And that's the difficulty in trying to decision make in those areas. Mm. What do you think that this study means we should tell parents? I mean, put yourself back in those delivery rooms. What do you say to someone that's trying to make these... Well, quite quick decisions. I think we need to 
be absolutely clear about what the outcomes are. We need to go into the process of providing care with our eyes wide open. We need to inform parents, obviously, but they need to understand as well that the outcome is not guaranteed one way or the other. Yeah. The second thing that I think we need to do is we need to be very careful that we make careful assessment after birth in the first few days because it may be apparent then that um, something catastrophic has happened and that changes your risk pattern. Mm. And, and then if we look at the babies that died within Epicure, I think previously in the first 95 study, about 55% of babies um, who died on the neonatal unit had active withdrawal of care and redirection towards palliative care. Mm. And in 2006, that's gone up to nearly 80%. So people are making careful assessments. If they, they do start offering intensive care, then they are also have to be prepared to make a decision at some point to stop. And I think it's that's simple humanity, and it's it's very much within the culture of what we do. And it's very much a process of taking parents along with you as well. Absolutely. Thank you very much. Thank you. And that research is now available online on bmj.com. Now, Lifebox, the charity which supplies rugged pulse oximeters to resourceful countries, has been chosen for the BMJ's Christmas Appeal again this year. Jane Feynman, a freelance journalist who writes for the BMJ, caught up with the chair of the charity's foundation board, Atul Gwandi, who's also a writer, a surgeon at Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston, and a professor of surgery at Harvard. He explains how ULOT helped out last year, and a little bit more about the box itself. How did the BMJ readers contribute last year? What impact did it have? It was a really extraordinary injection for us. It was 33,000 pounds, actually more than that. It allowed us to distribute oximeters in Cameroon, Ethiopia, Cambodia, Sierra Leone, Nicaragua, Bangladesh, Papua New Guinea, Nepal, Uganda. Funded 210 oximeters directly. It allowed us to put training into these places. Last year, we went from one country, Uganda, that had... Uh, where we were able to cover all of their operating theaters and provide training to, um, uh, by the close of this year, we are up to 10 countries in which that was the case. So there was an indirect effect as well that the the BMJ campaign also um, brought us credibility so that other NGOs then stepped in. um, And we partnered with a, a number of NGOs that have allowed us to take it all the way across to to these um, multiple other places, and they range from uh, Honduras, El Salvador, um, to Eritrea and Ethiopia. Really uh, been, a, been a striking effect, and I, I just could not be more grateful. Even so, the poor countries that you're helping struggle to afford basic health care. Shouldn't BMJ readers be funding things like immunisation, basic medicines, primary health care workers rather than something that might be seen as something of a luxury. It is the fascinating thing about the value of surgery in the modern world now is that um, there have been now a number of studies showing that the cost effectiveness of, of essential and emergency surgery is as high or higher than a vaccine. 
you think about the transformation that low-income countries are undergoing, road traffic accidents have climbed into being a top five killer. Cardiac disease has replaced respiratory disease and uh, malnutrition as the number one killer. You also have maternal death directly related to the provision of surgical care. So now about 50% of the surgery done in operating theaters is for emergency obstetrics. Here is a device that we've been able to, through volume discounting, lower the cost to 10%. And so this monitor, which will last three years, ends up being pennies per patient for an incredibly high-risk moment in people's lives. And it sounds as though, from what you were saying earlier, that pulse oximetry brought about a sort of cultural change. That's really what you're, what, what's, what's aiming to happen with Lifebooks. Yeah, that's right. Um, if all we were doing was parachuting in a bunch of pulse oximeters, I'm not sure we would um, have tremendous impact. What we've done is to work with the local medical societies, especially the anesthesia societies in each of the countries, to identify the need, help deliver these into place, and then also organize training, both by um, experienced people from within the country who have been well-trained and people from outside who have come run training workshops and then and then brought them in. So the result is that, for example, our very first country that we targeted the, the goal that we would make sure there was an oximeter in every operating room in the country and that the anesthesia, anesthesia providers were uh, trained in in um, how to use the pulse oximeters, in basic anesthesia safety principles, and in obstetric anesthesia safety, because half of what they do is emergency obstetrics. Um, we did that in Uganda. Um, we worked with the local society. We got training in place for, for virtually every, every hospital doing operations in the country. We took them from over 70% of their operating not having these devices in place, having them in place. And then we circled back six months later to see were the devices in use, and if you tested them on their knowledge, did they retain the knowledge six months later? And the answer was yes. There was only one oximeter missing, and that was because the anesthesiologist had taken it with her to the Sudan where she had gone to do refugee surgery, and we think that one is still also in use, but every other one was in use, functioning, um, and the teams retained the knowledge of the safety practices six months later. Is it possible to say how many operations are carried out with a single pulse oximeter? I mean. Yeah, so you know, a typical um, operating theater in these low-income environments will, will be doing around 500 to 1,000 operations. So, you know, a single oximeter in the course that, that can last conservatively two years would be helping 2,000 people. And in many cases, they can last years and you just have to replace the probes, which are $20 items that we also provide. So what about the cost, though? This is something that some doctors have been concerned about. Look on Amazon and you can get a pulse oximeter for about £25. That are supposed to be... FDA approved, CE marked, and sold as high quality pulse oximeters. What's the difference between these and the Lifebox pulse oximeter? Yeah. 
The, the, the major difference is the difference between a spot pulse oximeter and ones that have what you need for operating room safety. So a spot pulse oximeter, first of all, you have to look at it to read it. It, it just takes a momentary reading and then, and then turns off. It is not a continuous monitor, and it doesn't have any alarms. It doesn't have a pulse reading on it so that you can also be monitoring the pulse of the patient. And, um, and without an audible alert where you get a beep, 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 and then you hear the sound of either the heart rate slowing or the oxygen level slowing, you lose that critical moment of knowing right away when you have a patient in trouble. Many times in the places that we've seen, the anesthesia providers will have bought a even cheaper than 25-pound spot finger pulse ox, um, uh, but it will not have done the job. And, and I've been there where you then look under the drapes and you see that the reading is 70%, um, which is not a good oxygen level. <laughs> and um, the uh, the that's the key. So when we set out to do this, we the way we did it, it's called sourcing the spec. Um, it's often not the way we do it in Western care either, which is that we, we just look in the catalogs and buy whatever bells and whistles people are out there selling us. But what we did was defined what are the specifications, the minimum specifications of a safe oximeter for, for, for the operating room, and indeed having the, the industry certification on the safety, the wiring is, is um, able to stand the heat and the cold of these kinds of environments, that it can have a battery that lasts at least 18 hours so that it's functional for uh, electrical outages, that it has the readouts that we talked about, that it can be dropped from table height without breaking. All of those things were what we then went to the manufacturers and said, what is your lowest cost version of this? And um, uh, we had eight bids, actually. And the winning bid was quite robust and markedly cheaper than what was otherwise available in these countries. Right. I think that explains it very well. I, I think also there have been concerns that live box oximeters might be resold. Is there any evidence that this is happening? Yeah, we, we on the one hand, we didn't find the evidence of it. Um, we have talked about that at great length with our anesthesia societies um, uh, and surgical societies that have been involved with what we're doing. And, you know, the, the, the puzzle of it is, what if it got resold? What, or what if someone went out and used it in somewhere else? It's only one valuable purpose, which is monitoring of patients. And if there's some leakage and you start seeing it go from an operating room into an emergency room where it's saving lives or into another hospital it's saving lives, if that was what was happening with 30% of the oximeters, we would really want to rethink how to make sure we're distributing. But if, if a few of them ended up going absconding out of the hospital with a anesthesiologist who headed to the Sudan to do refugee work, you know what? Yeah, I'm quite fine with that. Yes. I uh, also believe there's evidence that manufacturers are producing oximeters that look like life box. Yes, there's, it's, been a, it's been a fascinating effect on the market, which is that um, the recognition that a low-cost, robust device is of value is leading to a change in the market. Um, and I just think that's fantastic. You know, th basically, manufacturers have ignored the low-income world. They've regarded it as an irrelevant market. And so our colleagues in the low-income and middle-income parts of the world have ordered from U.S. and European catalogs where they're paying markups that are much higher than what we pay. Um, 
because they get no volume discounts, expensive distribution fees, all of those kinds of things. And part of our goal here was to show that a consortium of low-income hospitals could provide enough of a market to be of interest to the manufacturers. And you know, our estimates from data we published in The Lancet a couple years ago suggest there are between 70 and 90,000 operating theaters around the world that are without basic safety equipment, including with, without pulse oximetry. And if we're going to close that gap, we see it as happening in three ways. One is oximeters that we distribute for free with training because we know that they're never going to be able to afford it. Second, oximeters that are purchased by these low-income settings because it's cheaper to get it through LifeBox. And third, because we've set up competition that leads manufacturers to bring their prices down for these places and that they find that they're able to get other options that'll work just as well. And we're starting to see some of that happening. Our goal is within the next few years that we have actually completely transformed that standard and expectation, the professionalization, the culture of safer surgery and use this sort of creative mechanism to do it. And we're seeing signs faster than I even could have hoped that it's caught people's imagination and it's made a difference. And if you'd like to support Lifebox again this year, have a look on bmj.com where you can find out where to pledge your money. That's all for this week. Next week we'll be back asking if there's such a thing as non-celiac gluten sensitivity. Join us then. For more information about this programme and other BMJ Group podcasts, please visit bmj.com.